our 2018 Year in Review and Moxie Awards on episode 86 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 86 of So Many Insane Plays, our 2018 Vintage Year in Review. 2018 has been another eventful year in the history of Magic's grandest and oldest constructed format. Join us for a brief tour down memory lane as we recount the new cards, sets, decks, and stories that shaped the vintage this past year, and as we award our annual Moxies for these categories. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. As always, we begin with a few announcements. So for local tournaments, I don't have the date in front of me right now, but RIW took a brief break from monthly events, and we're starting up again this month here in January. So we've got events at RIW, I think it's on the 13th, and then again at Perfect Storm Comics and Games in Battle Creek on the 27th. Those of you who are longtime listeners of the show may notice I just described a different name for our store in Battle Creek. That's because it has new ownership. So what was BC Comics in Battle Creek has changed to Perfect Storm Comics and Games. That and RIW in Livonia both can be found on Facebook, so you can get the latest on their uh, their vintage tournaments. And it's I'm spoiling something a little bit for the future here in uh, west michigan but i think we may have another shop in grand rapids start holding some proxy vintage tournaments i've been already in talks with one of our local shop owners so there could be even more local vintage in michigan is the is the new store owner uh, a big storm fan do you like <laughs> casting dark rituals <laughs> uh yes yes very much so really <laughs> that's <laughs> okay. right you you may remember you may have met at some point carter who is the owner of Perfect Storm. That has been his business, which has been primarily an online business in terms of magic sales for a long time. Now he has bought the what was BC Comics, so now he has a, a brick-and-mortar store also. Steve, how about you? What about your local vintage scene? Well, our, uh, the only uh, store in the, in the Bay Area that holds regular vintage these days is Eudaimonia Udo Games at, uh, in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And they are having a vintage tournament on Sunday, January thirteenth. I'll try and make it out to that. There, that's awesome. uh, that. Yep, it's uh, it's up to fifteen proxies allowed, hundred percent payout and store credit, and the Swiss rounds with cut to top eight. That's pretty good. Hey, maybe you and I will be playing vintage on the same day on the thirteenth. That'd be cool. <laughs> that would be fun. So we've talked about it previously in small detail, but VSL season nine starts this month in January, wow. specifically January fifteenth. It's on Tuesday nights again, and Randy Bueller just recently released the schedule. There will be two four-week... Is this public? It is. Well, the second one hasn't been scheduled, but there will be two four-week semesters, effectively, where everyone plays once. Well, I should say three times. And then those records will form the playoffs. So we know the first four weeks. Starting on January 15, we've got four weeks where four players each play. Steve, neither you or I play on the first week. The first week is Aaron, Rich, Bob, and Cyrus. Then you're on week two. January 22nd, Brassman, Randy, you, and Brian. 
our current vintage champ. Week three, oh, we cool. have, yep, re- yeah. week three, so we have what's Rachel. What's the chance he's playing PO? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that there's a very high chance of that. He's got to play it at least one of the weeks, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the third week, Rachel, Andreas, Seth, and Brian. And then I'm playing in a week. Brian, different Brian. Yeah, that's right. Oh, sorry. I, you're right. It's Brian, Brian Koval on week two in your group, Brian Kelly in week three. Yeah. Then in the, the fourth The Dragon Lord week, Kelly. That's right. The yeah. fourth week is the one I play in with Saffron Olive, Matt Sperling, Andy Markiton, last year's champ, and myself. So this Murder is great. Row. Yeah, this is going to be a great. This is a great four weeks sequence. Every grouping of people is fantastic, and and there's a lot of different personalities here and people who bring different styles and predilections to the table. So I think every one of these weeks is going to be cool. Yeah, it's interesting. Your your uh, week. I mean, a- Andy Markenton is is going to be hard pressed not to play shops. <laughs> I mean, he's he's actually played oath before, yep. you know. But but that's you know. So you and I think. That that really should inform your deck selection or at least deck tuning <laughs> <laughs> process. Well, I've, I've got to be honest. Between Saffron, Olive, Matt Sperling, and Andy Markiton, the range of de- th- their their center points are dramatically different for all three of them, I think. And their ranges skew differently for all three of them. So I, I really can't... Um, I really don't think I can rest on too many assumptions except to point out that yes, Andy probably is predisposed to play uh, his shops in one of the two weeks. And I would say Matt is probably predisposed to play rug in one of his two weeks, but those things I I can't count on them. Right. Because I'm only looking at one of two weeks. And so I have to, I have to play to a pretty broad range, which I'm comfortable with. There is one other interesting wrinkle, which is that uh, on January 16th, Ravnica Allegiance becomes legal in Magic Online. Yeah. Even though it's officially released on the 25th. So that means that I will have the first opportunity on the 22nd to play Ravnica Allegiance in the VSL. That's very attractive. Now, uh, this is, uh, I guess this falls under the header of announcements, Kevin. Yeah. But our next show will be the Ravnica Allegiance uh, set review. Um, right now, there aren't enough cards spoiled for us to do a review, but there are definitely some juicy cards to discuss in that set. <laughs> no doubt no doubt so steve point of clarification magic uh, ravnica allegiance hits magic online on january 16 so it'll be legal starting on the 22nd just so everyone understands the dates um that means as you said that the second week of vsl will be the first opportunity for us the vsl participants to to play with ravnica allegiance and I mean, of the cards we've got spoiled already just in the first last couple of weeks, um, there's already some juicy tidbits there. And I, I, I just can't shake the notion that there will be multiple decks over the course of the first and second semesters of the VSL uh, influenced by the new set, which is pretty exciting. And also for clarification on the VSL this time, this is, again, an individual season, not team. Right. So everyone... Season eight was the team VSL, yep. which was last year's VSL. I guess the last couple of years were on the annual structure. The 2017 was season seven, where you went to the finals. I can't remember whether there were two VSLs that year or not, but um, you know there have been this whole thing kicked off in 2014. So there have been nine seasons, eight seasons compressed into five years. <laughs> yeah, and we have been on a bit of an extended hiatus. the The structure for this event includes some intentional deck variety, but not. Um, hard and fast rules like we had for the team event 
So Randy has simply requested that people play, quote unquote, different decks for the first two weeks, or sorry, the first two semesters uh, of the season. And he has not laid down any strong rules about what constitutes difference. So it's it's up to us to be on the honor system <laughs> yeah. to play different decks. <laughs> but what it does mean is we have maybe a little bit more leeway to play decks that overlap by more cards than they could in the the prior season. Right. When people were digging deep for different cantrips like sleight of hand and stuff, we don't quite have to go that deep to play, quote unquote, different decks. But you should still see some fun (laughs) variety. Yes. Now, this is going to be really fun. I mean, we've been talking about the technical aspects of this, but this is going to be a blast. It's going to be great television. It's going to be great entertainment. (laughs) It's going to be great. I'm going to enjoy watching it as much as playing it. And I'm looking forward to the commentary. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't really have to, I think, with Vintage right now and this many players worry too much about different decks you're going to get a lot of interesting variety especially with this new set coming in and people being really strongly incented to play some of these so um it's going to be great Mm -hmm. couldn't agree more so tune in starting january 15 that's tuesday nights and it starts in the evening which is 8 or 8 30 uh eastern time Uh, so five o'clock or 5 30 um pacific time so, Steve, what other kind of article content do you have for us <laughs> wrapping up the year? Well, this is still under the announcements header, but um, I, I've just published a flurry of, of free articles lately. Um, I published this, uh, the Gin of Free War format, which is an old school format. It's a free article, part two, part two of this. It was a, a really good time we had in, in Berkeley playing this format, so you can check that out. Um, t- I also, tell, tell the audience a little bit about what that means, Jennifer War. So what is it? The Jennifer War is a is a a format that was created by an editor of Inquest in the in the 1995. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what published it is, in Inquest, it, right? Published in Inquest and created by the editor mm-hmm. um, in an, in an article, a feature article. And what it was is an article. It's a, it's a game setup, a multiplayer setup, preferably using Emperor rules, where you have a number of treasures set up in the middle of the board that players can use their creatures to secure by attacking. The, the treasures are guarded by guardians that are selected by me, <laughs> and there are also um, resources. So the, there's resources where you get points, and you win, the, you win the game by getting to 10 points, 10 resource points. Mm-hmm. And, and when you secure a resource, you f- either get a treasure with it or a trap. You spring a trap. <laughs> and so it allows you to use all these really cool old-school cards you know, that, that are from Arabian Nights, Antiquities, in the original setup, every artifact and land from Arabian Nights is a resource, a trap, or a treasure. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, so it's really fun. It really is evocative of old school. You can set it up any way you want, but it allows me to like pick through like my my favorite <laughs> old school cards that would never otherwise see play. I put like <laughs> Yogmoth's Demon and Shivan Dragon, and you know all those cards as guardians. It was a we had a blast. Matt Sperling joined us. Um, I had no idea. I never played a kind of a commander format before. We decided to play undercard decks this time instead okay. of recons. And I could not believe how good Dakin Blackblade was in this format. <laughs> like he, Dakin Blackblade was able to basically win win games yeah. <laughs> by attacking in the center, securing points. And he's like 10, 10, 11, 11. <laughs> anyway, read, read my article. It was, it was really fun. It was really funny too. Really funny to play. Um, I also got, uh, I, I don't know, in the last two or three months, I published a handful of free articles. One I mentioned in our last show on diversity, metagame diversity. And I've got about three or four free articles in the hopper. On January 25th, Kevin, is the 25th anniversary of the institution of the Duelist Convocation Bannon Restricted List. 
Wow. So I have a free article coming out about that, which I'll, I'll just tease now. I'll tell you more about it in our next set, re- in our set review that I'm going to try and launch that day. Um, and then I've got a couple of other things I'm, I'm working on. In addition to wrapping up the history of vintage series, well, everyone knows I finished, if you listen to this podcast, you know, I finished this 25 chapter series le- earlier in, in 2018, but I've actually completed all but two of the revisions to the chapters, going through expanding them, editing, adding new content, tightening up, cleaning up things. So we're well on our way to turning that into a, a physical book, which is great. So another announcement, which is not really an announcement proper, but it's additional magic content that we definitely want to point our, our listeners to. And that is Matt Sperling and Eric Virgo recorded a YouTube video of a discussion of the scenario that they created in testing that we discussed during our last scenarios episode. They recorded their discussion and their thoughts on it with a slightly different frame. They discussed it from the perspective of the somewhat perfect information they had in terms of deck lists, since Matt was testing for his top eight matchup with Rich again. Steve, you and I, we framed the discussion a little bit more broadly, a little more generally, whereas you might not have known your opponent in their deck. Matt and Eric were very interested in what it meant to them specifically in the moment, but because they did know each other's deck, which definitely spins the thing a little differently. And they recorded a nice discussion uh, that goes pretty in-depth, just like we did. And I would encourage all of our listeners, if you like that sort of thing, go look on YouTube or go look on, say, Matt's Twitter we we retweeted it from our show account as well so you can find it there if you like but uh, i definitely recommend it yeah i thought it, i thought the whole discussion was really interesting one of the things that well, there's there's a couple of things i want to point out that i thought were particularly noteworthy one is that both all the people who are directly involved in the scenario coming into existence mm-hmm. rich shay matt sperling and eric virgo who was the the unnamed test partner um, mm-hmm. all three of those people said that they preferred the setup for the scenario where it was where it was perfect information and and i totally understand that because they were the ones actually involved in that mm-hmm. and so from their perspective it's much more interesting when you're actually analyzing it with that information but i think for anyone who isn't rich shea who isn't matt sperling who isn't <laughs> eric virgo <laughs> because it wasn't their decks or it, you know in the testing scenario i think it's it's i think your the way you set it up was preferable but i but i did think that was interesting the second thing that I thought was really interesting I really liked how Matt honed in on a, a kind of ordinal ranking, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, how, how we didn't do that. We kind of, it was more, our conversation was a little bit more inchoate in that we just tried to land on what our top preference was as opposed to actually ranking them. So I, I think we should actually do it, do it now, Kevin, just to wrap up that, that bit of the discussion. But before we do it, I wanted to say that I was a little bit surprised that the, the consensus veered towards wasteland being that, you know, that was one that I, I was uh, leaning towards at the beginning of our conversation, and I landed on Sphere. Mm-hmm. But but I but Rich Shea just came out swinging on Twitter, and said, I mean, he came out with very strong statements that he thinks that he would wasteland. And I think that's where Matt landed, and then Eric Virgo uh, a couple of days later said that he went on like a long hike or a camping trip or something, and thought nothing <laughs> else. Nothing else. <laughs> yeah, he said he went camping the next day and thought about nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> a little else. Um, so I, I like that. I do want to ask you that. But the, I think there's a, a those are the two observations I have. But I think there's actually a philosophical difference that I wasn't quite keyed in, clued into before we had the conversation. I think it. I think the one of the fulcrum points for this is: Do you play in an unknown scenario in a broad scenario? Do you play what you think is most likely to happen, 
or, and this is a generalization, or do you play what you are afraid of most? Hmm. Now, I know that that is not a sharp dichotomy because it becomes complicated when you get into the specifics. But what, I, what I'm trying to get at is that there is, I think there are people who have different dispositions for risk tolerance. Oh, yeah. I, I think it might actually be a personal flaw of mine that I am so risk averse that you'll see me discarding wind conditions in the VSL mm-hmm. as a way of maximizing my ability to maintain control. So I'll, I'll discard Delvers rather than, than discard, you know, and not play a Delver to maximize my mana so that I can hold maximum counter magic. Yep. So there's, you know, so I, there are windows of opportunity that I miss because I'm, I'm such a kind of like, no matter what I'm playing, I'm so control oriented. I think that's partly what inclines me to the sphere. Yep. And so I think that like, you know, Eric Virgo's initial impulse of steel overseer is so dissonant for me (laughs) because it does nothing in terms of control, right? I think that philosophical, I think that's kind of my deep post (laughs) post analysis, having listened to theirs and listened to ours again, conclusion that this isn't just about, this is not, this can't, this whole scenario is, 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 it's even beyond a Rorschach test. (laughs) It really reveals, I think, deep dispositional predispositions about players that are more philosophical than they are analytical. Mm -hmm. And I think mine is just, I'm so risk averse. And it's not that I think that it's like more probable than not that something explosive can happen. But I think what really pushed me in this fear camp at the end was my fear of, of something explosive happening. And it's not that I thought he had something explosive in hand. I think you and I both preliminary, you know, provisionally concluded that he didn't have anything explosive, but he might've had a brainstorm or ancestral, yeah. Or possibly Snapcaster, because those are instants that he would play on our turn, mm-hmm. on, the, on the workshop player's turn. But it's so easy for the cantrip deck to draw one card that mm-hmm. then becomes a cascade of cards. So if he were to draw a probe that turns into a pre-drain, that turns into a DAC, that turns into a mock, right? Yep. That, so the sphere clamps that down. And the, the, the worst case scenario for sphere is that it's countered, or that he used the Lotus to destroy it. And that's, those are both two for one. Right. So that's what kind of led me to the sphere. So I still think now if we narrow the scenario to Matt's deck, then I wouldn't play sphere because the spell pierce really changes the equation. But if we maintain the broader scenario where we don't know exactly what our opponent's playing, I still think I think for my conclusion is it's sphere by a hair mm-hmm. over revoker by a hair over wasteland over steel over by a huge margin over steel overseer <laughs> by an even larger margin over ravage. <laughs> that's where I would land. What about I, you? Well, I, I think that's all very reasonable. I really can't uh, add much to what you said. I, I agree on all points how this particular scenario is such a Rorschach test. Uh, Eric Virgo made multiple comments about how great this is because it's just <laughs> he's been playing magic. I think he's, he's been playing magic for 18 years and he still doesn't know what's right. And this still reveals that, you know, there's so many different um, perspectives and and that's what makes this game so great. I mean, I would just encourage those of you who really enjoyed scenarios and and liked that one in particular and have strong feelings about it, maybe to go listen to their assessment because it's it's good. It's good discussion, and uh, it, it does I'm just reiterate uh, why this game is so great. I'm not going to let you off the hook, though. I need I need your ranking. Well, so are you asking me if my position in the abstract changed? Since yeah, our let, discussion, no, or, I just want to know what's your list because even in our discussion, we didn't—I didn't actually get a list from you. Well, I think my list is—I feel like my list matches yours exactly. If we stay in the abstract realm, sphere by but, hair over revoker yeah, over, by hair over wasteland. Uh, actually, no. I, I, 
I've got Revoker and Wasteland reversed. Flip. I think it's Sphere, then Wasteland, then Revoker. But those are all quite close. And then, as yes. you put it, there's a large gulf to uh, Overseer and a large gulf to Ravager. So yeah, that's fair. I mean, I was really, I was really attracted to Wasteland when we got into our discussion, Kevin, mm-hmm. where I where I made the point that the Wasteland doesn't just rewind the game, but it get, I think it's asymmetrical in the sense that the Workshop player in a deck with Workshops and Ancient Tombs, yep. I think, actually, in, in in more Wastelands, actually comes out ahead. Yep. So I totally understand why most of the people lay in Wasteland, but I don't think that you can just, again, this is because of my <laughs> control freak disposition. I don't think you can just let the, you know, your opponent completely unimpeded turn two with Wasteland. Yeah. That's why I prefer Sphere or Revoker first. And I don't think it's much more to say about it, but I think what, you know, the, the, if you want to dig a little bit deeper into this dispositional issue, I think what's interesting is that, and there's no way I think to perfectly resolve this. But there's a difference between probability and, and harm, right? <laughs> so you can have something that has low probability, but if it occurs and it has great harm, like an yeah. earthquake, yeah. right? And then there's something that has maybe high probability and less harm. And I, there's no, I don't think there's an answer to that issue, right? Sure. But where you land, you know, so I am, I am so risk averse that even if something is lower probability, I will take steps to prevent that from occurring or to mitigate the damage of that occurring, right? <laughs> Even though it's not necessarily the most probable thing. Yeah. That's why, and I think that the, the more experienced con- vintage players, you know, the more games you play, if you're really trying to win a tournament, you're not just playing odds. You're not just playing what you think is going to happen, mm-hmm. but you're trying to close off routes that your opponent might have, no matter how small. Because if you play enough games, those small routes occur. Mm-hmm. You know, So I think that's where that disposition comes from. Well, at the risk of uh, rehashing this whole scenario, I think we have to move on. No, that's, that's, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. I just but, wanted to lay that out. I draw that out. I thought. Yeah. I think that was an important reflection that that only could have come after I listened to Matt and Eric. Yeah. Tape. Yeah. And, that, and, refle- and really reflected on it. Awesome. But enough of announcements. Let's talk about our year in review. So we have a lot of subsets of topics here for our year in review. For those of you who've been listening for a while, you know the kind of things we like to cover. We like to cover what the calendar, what's been released, what the major events of the year, what the the metagame was like throughout the year, and new changes and new introductions into the format, be they cards or sets or decks, etc. And then we'll end by awarding our moxies, which are are awards that we give for the best new set, the best new card, the best deck of the year, and the biggest storyline of the year. I Those think this th- is the fourth year we've been doing this, maybe even longer. So yeah. it's become an, a tradition with That's us. That's right. You know, of all the things, though, that, that kind of tentpole a year, the biggest is just set releases because it doesn't matter where you are in the world, doesn't matter whether you played in tournaments or not, everyone experiences the set release because you get access to new cards. So I, I always think it's easiest to start with the set releases. And just to recap, the sets that actually, there are lots of specialty sets, special products, different kinds of things. And really since about 2013 or 14, there have been, this began, I think with Commander, it might have been, there might have been another product first, where 
Wizards of the Coast began introducing specialty sets that created new cards for Eternal. Mm-hmm. So there's Commander, there's uh, 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 Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. There was, what was the one that Dak Faden came in? Was that a Conspiracy That's Conspiracy, set? yep. Yeah. And then there was like Battle Bond this year, which was a new thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so so this is a, so when I look back in the vintage year in review, I'm only talking about the sets that introduced new cards. And mm-hmm. and you might recall that beginning with, I think it was M10, uh, the core set introduced new cards. M10 yep. had a doozy in Preordain, and then M11 <laughs> had a doozy in Young, young Pyromancer. Mm-hmm. So those were, and Ley Lines too. So um, the, the sets that introduced new cards this year were Rivals of Ixalan, which came out in January, this year, in, in, in 2018. Rivals of Ixalan, which came out in January of 2018. Dominaria, which came out in April of 2018. Battle Bond, which came out in June of 2018. Remind us what Battle Bond was, Kevin. Battle Bond is the set targeted at two-headed giant play. You can draft it in two-headed giant fashion, and then it has a whole bunch of cards that are targeted at that format, including multiplayer interaction, etc. Was that was that something you played? Oh, absolutely. I loved Battle Bond. I mean, I'm a commander player, and I, I drafted Battle Bond one time, which was a ton of fun. And I have integrated several of those cards into commander decks. It was really a great set, but it really did not contribute anything to Eternal. Yeah. Well, that is to say, okay, well, there's one exception. <laughs> there's two exceptions. There's uh, Spellseeker, the, the new uh, Think It Mage, and then there's the Archon of Valor's Reach, both of which have had sporadic play in vintage so I, we shouldn't say there were no cards there from battle bond there are there are a couple it's just <laughs> right. nothing nothing to write home about really then there was the core set 2019 which introduced a large number of new cards something like 70 80 maybe even over 100 then there was commander 2018 and then the final expansion set of the year was guilds of ravnica kevin i think it's probably useful i just i'll before we turn to the metagame or the event let me just recap some of the cards that we reviewed or really gave attention to because it's not it's not always about which cards see play, but which were the ones that got a lot of attention at the time? Mm-hmm. You know, which are the ones that kind of raised <laughs> raised eyebrows and, and prompted a lot of discussion? Starting with uh, Rivals of Ixalan, the cards that I think we were most we spent a lot of time on were Blood Sun. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about Dire Debt. We spent about 15 minutes on Dire Fleet Daredevil, the reverse Snapcaster Mage. And I think the other card that I think was really interesting was Induced Amnesia. We spent, uh, I think, like 40 minutes on that one yeah um yeah you know not and again we don't have to talk about just yet which of those cards saw play but i did want to i did want to uh just just note that and then from dominaria we you know there were a lot of cards we reviewed i won't mention them all but we spent a lot of time damping sphere was really i think the the exciting card coming in right that was the card that we spent <laughs> at least 40 minutes probably probably 45 50 minutes on um Karn, Sion of Urza was something we reviewed. Mox Amber was from the set. Traxos, we spent a good 10 minutes on. Those were kind of the big ones from that set. Um, and then Battlebond, we actually did discuss Battlebond, Kevin. We, yep. we did that in our uh, SCG Con, but we only reviewed a, a handful of cards. We, are, we reviewed Archon of Valor's Reach, which is just one of the most annoying cards for me to play against. <laughs> <laughs> hate that card. It's why I had Tariff in my sideboard for a while. Um, we talked about Spellseeker as well. Yep. There was stunning reversal and sentinel power. And then um, for the core set, we also did a special review just on the core set, Kevin, because we re- we were really excited about Psy, Master Thopterist. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a new Tezzeret. Um, I don't I don't think we spent a lot of time on some of these other cards. We talked about Runic Armasaur, um, 
a couple of other cars that are probably not worth mentioning, but those were some <laughs> of the Miss Caller. It was one of the cards we reviewed. Yep. And then in October, we did our Guilds of Ravnica set review where we talked about Niz- Niv-Mizzet, which is a card. I'm, I'm going to ask you later on what my prediction was for that, even though we're not quite ready to do formal predictions. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot. We talked about about Raul, is it Viceroy, uh, Mission Briefing, number of other cards. Um, but those were the, in Assassin's Trophy, of course, but those were kind of the highlights. So it's interesting. I think it'll be interesting to juxtapose the cards that were exciting at the time with kind of how things actually unfolded. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And so we have a lot of good information to cover in the card-specific front, but we don't want to go there just yet. Right. We first want to talk about what the tentpole events of 2018 were, and you've laid those out in in good detail because we've obviously reviewed the results for most of these in some great detail. We've been we've been tracking them through the year, and we're doing a pretty good job of tracking them. You know, it's interesting as the years kind of roll on. You can see roll on. You can see the patterns, right? There, you get these these events that kind of sweep in, and and like the Bazaar of Moxen and the Doomsday event in Europe and those things. But the 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 events that have really proliferated, especially in 2019, are the Eternal Weekend variant. That model of of, of an event has really become, is really proven effective and popular. I mean, it's far more popular than Gen Con was, frankly, which surprised me, right? Well, I mean, y- you mean that it's far more popular in terms of vintage tournament attendance than Gen Legacy Con Legacy too, like yeah. both. I mean, yeah. it, it's just that model of bringing eternal players together. Mm-hmm. They play an intense weekend and you get to do old school as well. It's just, it just works really well. It just works really well. I mean, you we, remember- we spec- yeah, I was just about to say the thing you were just about to say is, yeah, we, is we when they got rid of yeah when they got rid of champs from Gen Con, you and I talked about the potential replacements and how it could be handled. And one of the things that you I think you came up with it, but we discussed how we could have a dedicated <laughs> eternal kind of weekend and and yep. bring the champs together and have dedicated activities and tournament types and stuff. And we thought, wouldn't that be great? Well, turns out it is. I love that I can say one syllable and you know what I'm about to say. It's <laughs> <laughs> though we've been doing this for a while. <laughs> right. And, and that, that, that was like five or six years ago. So yep. you have a good memory. <laughs> um, so the big, ten, there were there really five tentpole tournaments of the year. In addition to the, the team VSL, which we'll talk about, and the, and the ongoing vintage challenge, which was a weekly event <laughs> this mm-hmm. year. The first really hit in May. Which, so you have a kind of a dry spell in the spring. But Eternal Weekend Europe got over 100 players. And we reviewed that in May. And I think it was all, probably the same weekend was Ray Robillard held his Waterbury tournament, mm-hmm. which was the only one this year in May. And that had 108 players. So those those events were won by Jeskai Mentor in Europe, uh, the Vintage Tournament. The Vintage Championship Europe was won by Jeskai Mentor. And then Justin Gennari won the Waterbury with Paradoxical Outcome. So the Xerox deck notched a victory and the PO deck not, notched a victory. And um, there was no NYSE this year. Nick, De- Nick Detweiler took the year off, but we were very presently pleasantly surprised that Pete Huffling brought the Power Nine series back mm-hmm. at SCGCon. One of the things I had to do in editing my uh, history of vintage chapters is that in the 2008 chapter said that the uh, Richmond, the May Richmond 2008 Star City Games Power Nine event was the last event in the series. <laughs> so <laughs> that had to be corrected. Uh-huh. Ten years later, uh, there's another, and and hopefully more. That was really a tremendous success. Uh, what was it? Something like 140 players 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like 15 rounds. It was incredible. It was pretty grueling. <laughs> uh, it was grueling, but he, giving away Power 9 was amazing. Uh, and great coverage. They did video coverage. Uh, they did uh, video interviews. They had, uh, you know, every round results, every round. It was just top-notch, part of a wonderful event at SCG Con. Looking forward to that again. That event was won by none other than Andy Markin mm-hmm. with his patented workshop, Montolio deck, Montolio Workshop. Mm-hmm. So the big event so far, Just Guy Mentor, PO uh, Shop. Then fast forward to August, Eternal Weekend Asia got 154 players in the Vintage Championship there, mm-hmm. which is, I think, more than Europe. Yep. So so Vintage is increasingly popular in Asia. I'm sure Hiromichi Ito has helped that. <laughs> yep. Um, and that event stunned everyone by being won by Survival. Survival kind of broke out around that period. I remember Survival actually the first Remember who was the first player to play survival in <laughs> in vintage? It was a VSL breakout. It oh, was the, right. I remember that. Sorry, I was thinking back to 2003. I mean, I meant I meant recently. Yeah, with, in, in the kind of Vengevine. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, what's the, the the free artifact creature? You know, what I'm talking about Hollow um, One. Yeah, the Vengevine Hollow One, Hollow One era is yeah. the, the contemporary survival the, the rachel agnes athena for actually athena folic team she's yep. the one who played that deck yep and then uh it's it's did really well in the vintage challenges this summer and then won this event in august uh, and then the last event of the year, major event of the year was eternal weekend north america in november which was just you know we had 360 some players in a bizarre series of circumstances brian koval uh found won- himself in the top eight <laughs> It, yeah, he won. He won the the tournament, and um, with paradoxical outcome, very competitive and diverse top eight. It had survival. It had Grixis. It had uh, several very strong shot players. It had um, uh, Matt Sperling on rug, mm-hmm. lose, losing to Richey in kind of amazing fashion <laughs> as a heavy favorite. Uh, you know, so really remarkable tournament. So at the end of the day, the the big five, temp, the five. Tent pole tournaments, as you called them, two two won by PO, one by survival, one by Xerox, one by shop, which I think reflects kind of the diversity of the year. <laughs> it really does. It's a nice cross section of the vintage metagame. Those those first place decks, and then the team VSL. Kevin, why don't you recap what happened with that? <laughs> well, the the team VSL was an exercise in diversity and and uh, game gaming the system and gaming your opponents and the result was some incredibly diverse and creative decks i alluded to it earlier but we had xerox decks that were sporting uh, second and third tier cantrips like sleight of hand and we had uh, the channel fireball team submitted the the all dredge lineup one week which was hilarious and actually ended up beating us Right. Which yeah, that was awesome. Was I forgot su- about that. Surprising yeah. and punishing and wonderful. And that actually led to some some breakouts in in uh, dredge development over the course of the summer. Right. And then we had a whole bunch of creativity in workshop decks, right? We had some good results at, at, in certain games and matchups with our stacks deck, for example. And in the end, that event was just this showcase of creativity and along with some some really strong play and a, some breakout performance specifically by LSV for example oh, who God, just yeah. who just dominated in the in the early parts of the tournament and all in all it was just an incredibly fun and fun to watch exercise 
Well, it brought a lot of new blood in, into the VSL mm-hmm, because there were eight teams with three players and or more <laughs> on each team. And, and due uh, to the structure, we had some high drama where some weeks the, the, the results went down to the last game of the last match of the night, oh yeah. which was fantastic. Oh, yeah. I think that probably the moments that stand out to me are the dr- the dredge debacle because we were completely <laughs> prepared for dredge and we went we could not beat it no matter what we did <laughs> we I mean we had all of us were loaded to bear I mean Baco had Leyline of the Void main deck yep and he still lost to dredge I had like containment priest and cage in play and lost to LSV <laughs> on dredge and um, <sighs> the other thing I remember is I remember. Just going on a tear with PO. I think I turn one tinkered and time walked against Aaron Campbell, mm-hmm. who, who was in the Hornet Queens. That was pretty brutal. Um, <laughs> and then I remember also. I think I think probably the, the the finale or near finale was amazing because I think the semifinals is the most interesting because the Academy I think was quite confident going into their match against Channel Fireball and you know LSV and his team is really really good and they got they got LSV. <laughs> they got totally LSV'd. He just played so well, like so phenomenally on a yeah. completely different level. But the the funniest part of the, I guess the the irony at the end was that LSV didn't even play in the finals. Yeah, because his team <laughs> defeated the Snapcardster. So <laughs> it was pretty remarkable. It was. Yeah, there were a lot of fun moments and storylines in that season. It was one to remember. Well, I think we should probably turn to the vintage challenges. You know, while we have these big temple tournaments that kind of anchor paper vintage, mm-hmm. the the rhythm for, for online vintage is now the challenge. It's become the, the de facto global weekly tournament. And the good news is that the, the most recent challenges, Kevin, have been in the, you know, if you look at the number of players in 2017, the challenges started in May of 2017, and they ran through December. You were getting about 40-some players, low 50s. Mm-hmm. We're now getting 70 players regularly every Saturday. So we're that's getting, really impressive. Yeah, it's it's become a, a really amazing event, fun to plan. I, I think that the increase, though, can partly be attributed by to the um, fact that there are now points and a whole championship series, which we'll talk about a little bit uh, again mm-hmm. more later. But what I want to do now, let's do this. Let's do a kind of I want to talk big picture about the year and then we'll talk about the quarter and then we'll do a little bit more granular breakdown. OK, yep. OK, so. The, since we've been talking about the year, I want to begin by, there are 52 challenges in the year. I want to talk about what archetypes have the most, well, actually won the event, okay? <laughs> so, Kevin, let me start by just asking you, don't don't cheat. Okay. What deck do you think won the most vintage challenges in 2018? Well, You can define I'm deck gonna, or archetype however yeah, you like. Yeah, I'm going to go with what I think is the safest bet and say workshops. Let's see if I'm right. You are right. Okay. How many how many tournaments? How many times did you think they won, they won out of fifty two? Out of fifty two, let me say, hmm, what would you make can play sense? Play along, along at home, folks. yeah. <laughs> how many do I think workshops won out of fifty two in the year? I'm gonna go with. I, I think it was a pretty diverse year, so I'm gonna say a dozen. That's a good guess. So that would have been about twenty three percent, right? Yeah. Well, the actual answer was fifteen. Okay, so 29 performing their ostensible portion of the metagame. Is that right? Definitely. Now, Workshops was a little bit streaky this year. It's weird, and I can't really explain it. But you had months where there were no Workshop decks winning, and then there were other months where they win three in a row. Mm-hmm. So it was a very, very streaky deck when it comes came to winning the Vintage Challenges. That, but it was 
it was by far the big winner. Then what do you think was the next big winner? I'm going to say outcome. Well, it, it, it really depends on how you aggregate the decks. <laughs> okay. You know, the outcome decks came in so many different varieties, but overall there were nine outcome decks that won Vintage Challenges, which is like almost half what shops did. Not quite, yeah. but you yeah. know. A significant drop-off. A significant drop-off. And that that nine, if, you, if you're interested in percentages, you want to know what percentage that is, that's 17.3% okay. of the Vintage Challenges. Jeskai Mentor won six event okay just just guy so just just the guy. blue blue white red won six but, but i'm guessing rug, other yeah other xerox decks also won a few that's right rug won four all in the last quarter and then delver won one okay in mid-year so if you add that up that's 11 xerox decks and i guess there was a blue white teferi deck that matt murray used to win that was kind of this pretty xeroxy so you can count that so if you add that that's 12 Mm-hmm. So that gets closer. That means that Xerox combined, all told, had about 23% of the, the Vintage Challenge top eight. Gotcha. Not top eight, sorry, victory. Victory. Yeah. So that would make Shops number one, Xerox number two, PO number three in terms of victory. Mm-hmm. After that, there's a pretty big drop off. The next is Bug and Bug Ardex, which won five. Okay. Five tournaments. So Bug did pretty well this year. Leovold, yeah, it had back to back there at the moment with almost identical lists. Sure did mm-hmm. in mid- mid-year. Then Dredge won four. I asked you offline how many you thought they won, and you said you, three or four, yeah. so you were dead on. <laughs> and then Oath actually won three, despite having a down year. It won three different tournaments. I don't think any of them were in the hands of Brian Kelly either. <laughs> can you can you tell us what times during the year did Oath win? I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. So Oath won February 3rd, mm-hmm. was its first victory, April 14th, and... It won November 4th. Interesting. So okay. It was pretty, pretty widely spaced. <laughs> That's really interesting. The, the one that happened on the weekend of champs is kind of an interesting, I, I'm not sure what to infer yeah. from that particular <laughs> tournament. It's but, hard to know, isn't it? <laughs> but it seems like every set or two, we end up with a, different, a new flavor or variation of people trying things in Oath. Did that, did that November list have Niv-Mizzet? I, I believe it did. Yeah. I believe it did. And I'm not sure about that, but I believe it did. The, the uh, There were a handful of decks that had won victories. I already mentioned Delver. Grixis uh, Thieves won an, an event early in the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned Matt Murray's Blue-White Teferi deck. Merfolk, Joel Lim Type Fish won, uh, won a, a Vintage Challenge this year. Landstill won a Vintage Challenge. And then Brian Kelly actually won. He won one Vintage Challenge with Snake Still. Snake the Still? Snake Still deck. Yeah, he yeah. calls that you know, his, his black, blue... <laughs> I think he has green in it. Yeah. Snake still deck. So those are the 52 decks that won Vintage Challenges this year. Pretty interesting. I mean, it's just, there are different ways to slice and dice the data mm-hmm. to give you different kinds of perspectives or viewpoints to kind of assess what's happening. Um, and I think that, you know, it's it's an imperfect measure, metric, but I think looking big picture, what actually won the challenges does tell you something. Mm-hmm. Tells you something. So let's turn to a little bit more granular focus. Let's look at Q4. Okay. Okay, Kevin. So now that all the vintage challenges of 2018 are done, and we've talked about, I think the last time we talked was a Q3. Um, oh yeah. There were a lot of oscillations during the year. You might remember that PO was six percent of top eights in April, and then it peaked, you know, earlier in the year at like 28 percent in February. So what happened in Q4? Mm-hmm. You want me to give you the Q4 totals? 
Kevin, start there, and then we can talk about the oscillations. Yeah. Okay. So the big winner in Q4 was PO. Okay. PO, which had never won a, a, a quarter in terms of being the most <laughs> number of top eights, has finally won a quarter at 26% of top eight. Okay. So 26% of top eights is- For a is, whole quarter, that's a significant quarter. It's a significant quarter, but that's in a healthy range. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we would consider 26% not to be particularly dangerous using <laughs> our historical benchmarks. Would you say that's the case? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 26 doesn't concern me at all. Um, if it continued to hold that and then continue to rise from there quarter over quarter, then I'd start to watch. But yeah, right. there's nothing concerning about that number. Well, let me let me give you the trend line, though. Mm-hmm. So in October, it was 19% of top eight. November, it was 22% of top eight. But in December, it jumped to 35% of top eight. Hmm. Interesting. Wonder what happened in November that would uh <laughs> December. Yeah. I know what I mean. What happened in November oh, that yeah. would cause people <laughs> to suddenly pay more attention to outcome. I'm joking. So the the obviously the proximity to champs there is is impacting that number. We'll have to see what happens in Q1 if people's interest wanes or not. Definitely. So in in Q4, the second most popular broad archetype is, is successful rather was Xerox. Xerox had 20% of top 8 Mm-hmm. And it was pretty well within range. It was 19% in October, 19% in November, and 23% in December. A slight rise with a little bit more rug doing well. Yeah. So yeah. 20%. That's pretty much where it was after mentors restriction too. So it's yeah. been been pretty steady. steady ready, yeah, steady. And, and I don't remember the exact number. I think I predicted 18 at champs this year. I mean, so yeah, that's what I would expect. 20% doesn't surprise me at all. Now, the, the third-headed... Uh, third leg of the stool <laughs> and the, of the vintage metagame of course is is shops and shops had 18.3 percent of q4 top eight mm-hmm. uh the number specific numbers were 16 percent in october 16 percent in november 23 percent in december so a little bit more divergence in- there interesting that shops also rose month over month the same month that outcome rose right that's a, that's counterintuitive and xerox rose all yeah. three rose they they stole shares from the other decks in the metagame. All three interesting. Very P. interesting. PO rose big from 22 to 35, mm-hmm. shops from 16 to 23, and Xerox from 19 to 23. Interesting. So there's, in December, there's been a consolidation into those three decks. What's that total number in December for those 30, three archetypes representing the whole, you know, their portion of the whole metagame? Those three archetypes were 81% of the top eight <sighs> wow. in December. That is a significant consolidation. It is. It, it's, it a little bit reminds me of how Mentor and Shops were, remember they were like 70%? Yeah. In this case, it's three decks. Yeah. And, and really more when you count like the Just Guy, you know, this part of the sub part of the Xerox. But yes. That's that's an interesting thing to watch. I wonder how much that will continue in, into Q1 of 2019 as well. But I must say that the one deck that you haven't mentioned yet that really is curious in my mind is Survival. Yeah, well, I'm not quite there yet because Survival, the next biggest deck, the next biggest share of the the metagame for Q4, it's actually Dredge, not Survival. Okay. It was at basically 11%, 10.6%. Now, Dredge moved in the opposite direction. In October, it was 16% of top eight. So it was just up there with the biggie. It had the same share as Shops. And at that time, PO and Xerox were 19%. So it was in the same range. It, that felt in nine, to 9% in November and 8% in December. Mm-hmm. So th- it's averaged, averaged at 11%. So that's where some of the big threes market share came from. Right. 
Survival didn't actually dip that much. Survival is the, is the fifth most played archetype at 8% of the Q4 top eight. So it's pretty mm-hmm. successful. 8% is not, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's still no. a pretty big share of vintage, of vintage metagame. And especially if it's consistent, yeah. It is. The, the, well, the breakdown was 9% in October, 9% in November, 5% in December. Okay. So to me, that's still pretty steady. That's a, that's a significant, you know, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. <laughs> Yeah, if it's if it's sharing almost equivalent percentage with Dredge, that's that's a statement, right? That's a right. significant part of the metagame that must be respected in perpetuity, I think. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's a flash in the pan. I think it's a yeah. real deck. So those five decks are basically vintage. There's mm-hmm. the next deck is actually Bug, which is seven percent of the metagame in Q4, with three percent share in October, nine percent share in November, and eight percent in December. Bug slash bug R. <laughs> Interesting. And then after that, you get sub fives. You get Oath at 3% in Q4. You get um, DPS at 1%. You get Landstill at 1%. And you get a Grixis, de- Grixis at 2% somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's always Grixis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the year to date totals for percentages, I'm only going to give it for a few. Mm-hmm. Um, there are 416 top eight decks. <laughs> All right. Uh, over the course of the year, um, the the winner was Shop with twenty three point three percent of top eights over the course of the year. Okay. Narrow second, well, second place was PO at nineteen point seven or twenty percent, and then Xerox at eighteen point five percent. Dredge had eleven point three percent, and then Survival because it was a latecomer only got three percent of top eight. So the the you know so so Shops was the was the overall winner of the year. In both in terms of victories and percentage of top eights, but um, you know, and although PO had thirty five percent of top eights in December it, and and won Q four at twenty six percent, there were certainly months this year where shops was very close to that. March shops was thirty three percent of top eights. April was thirty four percent of top eights. So so PO may have had the best overall month of the year, but only by one percent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's the well, that's, challenge data. Yeah, I, and thank you for putting together that that research. I mean that this has become an incredibly valuable resource for us as a show to do analysis, but also for the community to monitor the comings and goings of the metagame. And it's it's really fantastic. One other last data point I wanted to, to mention in our mm-hmm. previous podcasts, I discussed the Genie Simpson Diversity Index. Yep. I recall how I said that we were getting close to 0.9, yep. in terms of, which is a very high level of diversity. Um, the dis, the uh, November, I don't know if I gave the November data, but the November data was uh, just a hair worse than October. It was 0.8831, which is very, very high. But December actually was one of the worst of the, one of the worst of the year. The Genie Simpson value fell to 0.7821.78. So you're saying it is one of the least diverse months of 2018. That's right. December Mm -hmm. was the least diverse of the year by actually a pretty substantial margin. Well, actually, no, sorry. There was one month that was, it was almost identical to, which was March. So that's the inverse of the consolidation that I observed a few minutes ago. That, that when three decks make up 80% of the metagame approximately, then that's the natural (laughs) inverse. Right, the Genie Simpson value falls. So, so the, it looked December looked a lot like March. The difference was that in March 
which you had essentially the same the, in March shops was 33%, Xerox was 30% and PO was 13%. Mm-hmm. So you had the, the consolidation there was just doing the back of the up that's six that's uh, 63 plus that's 76% of the metagame in those three decks. <laughs> with dredge at 13 percent that's yeah. that's crazy i'm really interested to watch that are you going to continue to use this genie simpson metric do you think I in will. your monitoring i will i'll, yeah. I'll at the e- end of every year i'll or some point in the year i'll do a year year by year year over year graph so you can see kind of the how that metric is um where it's moving yeah, good. I like that metric, and I'm I'm just very keen to see the consolidation. Well, it's not always consolidation that implies you're always moving in one direction, but the fluctuations in that metric and its inverse, I right. think, will be interesting. And we always know that new sets tend to shake up vintage, but as, as we're about to discuss in terms of individual cards and such, while there were a lot of noteworthy cards that slotted into new roles and decks this year, there really was no particular sea change in in the way the metagame was constructed per se survival was a a big splash for example but it didn't really upset the balance of power in the metagame (laughs) no it didn't it's it's just become another player i think as you yeah yeah so let's talk about that let's talk about the big cards of the year and this is exciting and quantify (laughs) them and talk about what their impacts really were Grant, we worked. We reached out on Twitter, and this is the first time we've mentioned this, I think, in the show. But we got lots of great feedback for our Moxie nominations. Right, the four big categories of Moxie: set, card, deck, and story. And we got lots of great feedback. So thank you to all of you who responded in that way. We took your feedback plus some other data that we've, that like we've alluded to in our set reviews and things like that, to come up with a list of new cards that were impactful for the year. And there really is a pretty stark divide in terms of tier, right? There are two big hitters statistically this year, and then a handful of others that are <laughs> worth mentioning, right? So. What do you think, Steve? Start with the top or start from the bottom? Hmm. Because we've start, got. Go ahead. Let's start from the bottom up. Okay. Because we've got effectively eight honorable mentions here. So <laughs> ten cards that really made an impact from new sets this year. Um, uh, impact is is an interesting term. <laughs> okay. okay. So, <laughs> and we've got two on this list from Battle Bond. Right. This is the, this is kind of the bottom of the list. These are true honorable mentions because we already okay. mentioned Spellseeker and Archon of Valor's Reach. These are interesting cool cards, neither of which put up any top eights uh, over our 32-player yeah. threshold for the year. Right, right. I mean, yeah. Jaco, I think, did, had it. There were Archons of Valor's Reach and Oath decks, for sure. Yeah. There might have been... Wasn't there one in the sideboard of a Vintage Challenge in the top eight, do you think? Uh, not that I saw in, in my okay. data. Okay. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not infallible here, but the point is, these cards, while cool and useful, uh, were not impactful in the way that some other cards were. But we do have, let's see, six other cards that do have some top eight uh, stats to go with them. Let me talk about Damping Sphere from Dominaria. Damping Sphere, which, as you said earlier, we reviewed uh, reviewed to great detail <laughs> and were very interested in, put up eight total, sorry, seven total top eights in the year, uh, almost huh. all in sideboards. Brian huh. Kelly was the only one who made a top eight with a main deck Damping Sphere <laughs> in 2018. Uh, again, above the 32-player threshold. Next, I want to mention is Traxos, Scourge of Krug. Very the, heralded and yeah, feared the card. the enormous workshop monster put up nine top eights this year. Eight of the nine were in the main deck and in workshop decks, again from Dominaria. 
Next is Psymaster Thopterist, who you referenced earlier from M19. Very exciting card. Only put up two top eights, though. One main, one side. Yeah. I, I'm I'm genuinely of the opinion that Psy has more mileage ahead of him in the vintage format than those two top eights would belie. Uh, next up, we have Assassin's Trophy from Ravnica 3, the Inravniking. Uh, that's nine total top eights with a real even spread across main decks and sideboards. In fact, of those nine, four of them had both main deck and sideboard oh, trophies. Yeah. So interesting different roles for these cards already in the few that I've mentioned. Another fun one from RTR, TR, TR, TR is Experimental Frenzy. Now, it hasn't really taken off, so to speak, but it already has two top eights on the year. And that deck is fun and explosive and powerful and interesting. And I think we haven't heard the last of Experimental Frenzy either. And then a personal favorite of mine, Niv-Mizzet Parun from Two Return to Ravnica has put up four top eights on the year. Now, Steve, you made a request <laughs> earlier in the show, I think, to to put some historical record next to this, right? I did. <laughs> so in our set review, and this is where we're stealing some thunder from our future report card here, but in our set review for Guilds of Ravnica, I predicted zero Niv-Mizzets and you predicted one. So <laughs> you've, you've already won this one, but it's one that I am happy to have lost because I really love this card. And I, played I, it I actually thought I had predicted slightly more, yeah. but I maybe your conservative initial estimate <laughs> had me had me lowball. Well, I, and three of the four top eights here are in oath decks, and one of them was in a Jeskai mentor. Yeah, yeah, which is exactly what you expected. Yep, and uh, the one mentor appearance, the one mentor top eight. I mean, uh, echoes what I have learned recently, which is I think the card is castable. <laughs> I, you don't have to only oath it up. But you do have to structure your deck in order to do so. And this particular Jeskai list, for example, had Chandra, Torch of Defiance, which is a good role player who also makes casting Niv-Mizzet that much easier. So that's it for the honorable mentions. Then there is a humongous... So let's summarize that. So, the, oh, yeah. so, the, so just to summarize, the, of the honorable mentions, the two that saw the most play are Assassin's Trophy and Traxo. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of, I don't know how you put them, uh, <laughs> role players, uh, the... <laughs> Marginal tactics. Yeah. <laughs> Experimental Frenzy, though, th- um, that card has appeared in recent Vintage Challenge Top 8. Yeah. So it's it's definitely something you can do. I don't know how good it is. <laughs> it's, it's definitely um, still being explored. Yeah. And Niv-Miz, it just seems like it's just an Oath creature and, and a high-end, mm-hmm. uh, you know, good, if you can cast it, kind of Blue Moon type yeah. slash Jeskai type card. Yeah. Well, so there's I a lot of DNA that, with uh, Consecrated Sphinx in that sense. Yeah. That kind of thing very much of a dragon lord kelly type card mm-hmm. so those that, that's an interesting year i mean i wouldn't say that 2018 was a, a great year for new printing especially <laughs> if these are the mark i mean there were a lot of cards that were exciting yeah like like blood sun and damping sphere and sigh but they really didn't do a lot and the ones that we've got here that i mean traxos ended up not being very exciting and Assassin's trophy is just maybe a marginal improvement on on uh abrupt decay i don't think assassin trophy has done as much as i expected it to do honestly well, I mean, to be perfectly card, honest, it's it's. I mean, nine top eights is the, you know tied for third in terms of new cards this year. Enough, that's, that's decent. Fair enough. But the gulf is pretty enormous behind the one and two. That's which right. I'll let you reveal now. So, as I just said, nine top eights is the high point for the the marginal threshold. But then there is a jump up to twenty six top eights over the year. <laughs> oh, for the year, and that is from Teferi, Hero of Dominaria. Obviously, from Dominaria. 
all of those appearances, all 26 of them were in the main deck, and that included three challenge wins for Teferi, which is impressive. The card is really interesting because it allows Xerox players to bridge into a bigger control deck. Mm -hmm. Once you get into play, then you can play a Mana Drain deck, which Xerox decks have difficulty playing otherwise. So it's an interesting positional puzzle piece within a certain kind of strategy, hybrid strategy, mm-hmm. a kind of a hybrid Weissman's Comer school deck, which is a really interesting and powerful card. And we saw decks like that, like Josh Lalo's Xerox deck at the Star City Games Power 9 tournament epitomized mm-hmm. this type of deck. Now, is this does this make it one of the most played? Obviously, it does make it one of the most played uh, Planeswalkers and Vintage, but do you know where it ranks in the oh, top no. 10? I'm sorry, I, I, don't, I wish I had those stats because that's a really good question. And it's ironic that the other card <laughs> that I'm yeah. about to mention for 2018 is also a, pl- a new Planeswalker. <laughs> and so we may have to perform an analysis at, at the end of the year. Well, I mean, the year's over. But we have to perform a whole year analysis to look at all the top eights by Planeswalkers because I won't be surprised if these two aren't in the top five. And yeah. perhaps they might be, one of them might be in top three now that I think about it. So yeah, I mean, Dak is clearly number one. Maybe yeah. Jason's prodigy. It, I just don't know where these cards stack up against Chase the Mind Sculptor. I assume mm-hmm. they're way ahead of Tezzeret. But go ahead, tell us what it is. Yeah. So the number one in terms of total top eights for the year, new printings is Karn Scion of Urza from Dominaria. Of note, out of thirty-six top eights, twenty-five of those were out of the sideboard. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> o- only ten had main deck. Cards. <laughs> two, two, uh, two of those top eights had both main and side, and this is very powerfully dominated by paradoxical outcome lists, as you can imagine. <laughs> and it's worth noting that in some of the tent pole events this year, Karn was in the second place PO deck at Asia Vintage Champs, and both the first and third place PO decks at North American Vintage Champs. And it also had three challenge wins, which is tied with Teferi. Uh, all those challenges wins were in the sideboard, however. Kevin, I don't know that I can give an award, a Moxie award, to a sideboard card. <laughs> I mean, it it's only has it has less single main deck appearances than Trax. Oh, as as many as many as Traxos. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So when you count just so, the main deck appearances, it's it's al- almost directly on par with Traxos at nine and ten, which is, I mean, it's a worthwhile comparison to discuss. And I know you and I might have to debate i guess the the meaning of the moxie for best new card right because (laughs) you raise a very strong point these teferi decks were all main deck appearances all 26 of them and you have just commented on it it really changed the it hybridized that deck in a new and interesting direction and i think you can't discount that kind of impact on an archetype whereas i would posit that karn did not make a hybridizing or, or any kind of structural change to outcome. It was just a very strong synergistic tool that was best in certain matchups. Well, it definitely affected how the, those decks play out, how PO decks play out. Mm-hmm. But Karn's popularity was almost entirely tactical. That is, yeah. it, it trumped Pyroblast and Flusterstorm and Misstep, yep. those kinds of effects, and gave you yep. a different and angle of attack, which... I mean, it's not like Karn is single-handedly important in that respect. It just took the spot that was being used by, what's that black-white small hate bearer? That, <laughs> You're you know, talking about combo. Yeah, it's just, it's just been taking that kind of space, you know, that cyborg space where you just want a different angle of attack. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know that it's, like, incredibly special in that regard. It is special that you get a lot of card advantage, but 
I mean, I guess it's also just super synergistic with the fact that you get, it gives you both board advantage and card advantage, mm-hmm. which I guess Jace doesn't do, but it, it's not really clear that if those decks had all had Jace the Mind Sculptor instead, that they'd be so much worse <laughs> off. You know, it's like, really, you know? That's re- so. a reasonable comparison. Um, I- I'm totally with you. I, I think it's very tricky to assess the nature of um, what we're trying to recognize with a Moxie Award here, and that is Karn is just a really key and well-fitted piece into the puzzle that is Paradoxical Outcome and how Paradoxical Outcome is trying to fight the metagame. Whereas Teferi, it's not like it created a new deck, but it definitely created a new flavor of uh, of a hybridization or a midpoint of some some other existing archetypes. And there's no denying that those Blue White and those Jeskai Teferi decks are noticeably different than regular Xerox Jeskai. I don't even know that I could say that Karn was the most important or played card. I mean, played, what does that mean? Played <laughs> means, I mean, seriously, if, if, if it's a cyborg card, can you really say, say it's more played than Teferi? Yes, it appeared in more top eight deck lists, but Teferi crushed it in terms of main deck. Yeah, All 26 absolutely. in top eights in main, de- in main board. And it could be that of top eight appearances in quantity, Assassin's Trophy actually had more copies than these two cards because Trophy yeah. is a is a two to four of, right? Right. And Teferi is usually a one of and Karn is a one <laughs> or a two, right? So in terms of quantity in top eights, Trophy might be the number one most number played one. card. Yeah. <laughs> We're really slicing this thin yeah. here. Well, I mean, uh, we're just yeah. worth considering all the angles. Sh- should we get should we reserve our awards to the end of this? Yeah, I think we should. Okay. So let's let's not cover card anymore, and we'll give our awards at the end because there's far few thing, far fewer things to discuss in the other nominations. So let's move on to sets, right? There's not much to say here in the sense that we've already covered it in the calendar for the year and a little bit in our discussion of cards here. But let me just quickly run down the calendar. We've got Rivals of Ixalan, Dominaria, Battle Bond, Corset, Commander, and Guilds of Ravnica. Right. And the question is, what's the best set for vintage? Yeah. Right. So in the past, it hasn't always been an expansion set. The year the Theros block landed, it was like M11. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this Theros was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then probably in 2014, it might have even been conspiracy because of that. No, definitely not. That was uh, uh, definitely uh, cons. But yeah. before cons, it was conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. So you make a good point. This year, I think the math is actually fairly easy for us because this is part of the reason why we ran down cards first is to give some perspective by set. But in case you weren't following when I said the set from each card, of the, this is just total top eight appearances, the top one, two, three, four, five cards in our analysis. All from Dominaria? Uh, no, four out of the five of them are from Dominaria. Karn to Fairy. Traxos and Damping Sphere are from Dominaria. The and only we didn't one even the, review Teferi, by the I way. I know, and, and the, the the only one in the top five there that's not is, is Assassin's Trophy, which, in my opinion, puts Ravnica in, in firmly in second place because Ravnica yes. <laughs> had Niv-Mizzet, <laughs> Frenzy, and Assassin's Trophy. But I, in my opinion, it's, it's a, this is a runaway for Dominaria for the year. Okay, I'll hold off my my award until the end. But okay, thanks for setting it up. <laughs> <laughs> so next up, we have decks. And yeah. there are there are kind of one and a half concepts we want to address here. We want to talk about the best deck of the year. That's the award we usually get. Yeah. It's just, yeah. So it's it's for best overall archetype performance, really. 
But there's also a, a noteworthy subject, subcategory here, which is best new deck of the year. Now, we just ran down the, the metagame, the challenge results, the tentpole tournaments. So the best decks of the year is, is a short list, and, and, and you know it, right? It's shops, it's PO, it's, um, it's Xerox, basically. And you can slice the Xerox one if you want to get uh, more granular. But Steve, you just ran through some good stats that really support some conclusions there. Let's talk about the new decks, though. Yeah. And is there really, again, my feelings are similar to the set discussion. Is there anyone who can come close to talking about survival's impact on the, the format this year? Well, the, the rug deck is, is new in the sense that it's not a new concept, but there's, we, the, the pre original rug deck that Soleil Masi kind of popularized was built around Delver. Yep. And this new version of three Pyromancer, four DAC, um, and some unconventional choices was, is, is, is kind of a new deck, I would say. I think it's a new deck. Okay. I would also put Snake Still in, it, it, you know, Brian Kelly's going to play that. It's not a widely popular deck. It's there. <laughs> uh, the Blue-White Teferi deck, to the extent that exists. Um, I would also mention the Lands deck, which had a number, a handful of top eight. Mm-hmm. Those decks. Good. But I think that, yeah, the, um, the runner-up is Rug. Okay. Well, and it could be that Rug has... A growing impact it could be that 2019 shows that maybe rug becomes even more popular than survival and has a larger impact on the format but year to date so far especially when the two decks well they had kind of both breakout performances at north american champs but i really do think that more consistently did survival both yeah. perform well but also disrupt the metagame of sorts yeah. it top baited the vintage champs one yeah. asia yep and those two tent pull performances definitely put it above and beyond. And then the just the continued strong performance in the challenges in Q4 cements it for me. Yeah, nine nine five percent. Yeah, yeah. The, I I agree. So that's that's it. We'll give our our minor moxie award to the best uh, new deck survival. Yeah. So we do need to have some conversation about the candidates for the best story of the year. The stories that we have year over year, they kind of run the gamut from decks and their impacts on the metagame, emergence of new trends from the metagame, but also uh, community issues, tournament issue, tournament organizer issues, all manner of things. So <laughs> yeah. we've got a really broad scope here. We may have bitten off more than we could chew this year, in fact, because there are some, there are some doozies in 2018. But let's start with a relatively simple one. I think one of the fun stories of this year is the return and the resurgence of the survival deck. I've kind of yes. said it many times on the show, and I've been easy to point it out, right? The deck is cool, complex, diverse, not solved, um, fun, and and challenging, both to play with and against. I think it's just everything that's great in a vintage deck, and it has, uh, on top of that, put up some, some sterling results for the year. So there's just new two ways about it. It's really cool and a good addition to the format. Well, in the, um, the straw poll of our listeners... <laughs> that we asked them to, to give us feedback on what they thought was the story of the year. This was the one I think we got the, the most recurring responses on. The, yes, definitely the, the plurality. Yeah. So I think it's a, it's a very strong candidate. The rise of survival, the emergence of it, the winning a big event, and then managing to kind of become part of the fabric of the format. And I think it is a big story. I think it's it signifies both a new deck, but also a kind of return of a Lestrade-type strategy. You know, it's got Thalia, Hate Bears, this green-white type deck that we haven't really seen in a while. And there's so many different variants of it. And it's fast and can win out of nowhere, but also is resilient. And it can do a lot of things, disrupt the opponent. Um, 
So I, I think it's a big storyline. It's certainly a top candidate. Absolutely. Next up is a little bit of a cheat because this topic, as we've described it here, is a kind of a tapestry of interrelated issues. <laughs> it starts with the collapsing price of Power 9 cards on Magic Online. You can get like a full set of the Power 9 right now for nearly 50 bucks, give or take, depending on the day of the week. And that is inextricably tied to the rise and popularity and success of Magic Arena and how it interacts with right. the future of Magic Online and Magic as an eSport. As, as a spectator sport. Yeah. yeah. We all know that when you go on Twitch right now and look in the Magic channel, it is yeah. dominated by Arena. It's mostly Arena. Yeah. yeah. Arena Not is... Not all, but I mean, about 70% or something around there, 80 yeah. It, I, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that Arena is the future of Magic as a spectator sport, as you put it. And that has definitely impacted community and um, our well, collective confidence in the Magic Online uh, economy. Platform. And, I, yeah. I think the concern that, that's raised about this, there was a number of concerns. that There was that momentary collapse in December yeah. of the market where all the buyers kind of seized up their purchasing and you know that's thought out a bit, and the t- the value of tickets collapsed. But I think that the the concern there's a bigger concern, which is what is the future of vintage online, mm-hmm. and that arena is just you cannot play vintage on arena. Not only because it's not set up for it, but it never will be. Playing one game is not you can't play vintage as, as a as a best of one. You just cannot. <laughs> it's well, too variance based. Yeah, I agree with you. But it's worth noting that not all matches on arena are best of one right they do offer best of three i didn't know that i didn't know that best of one is the most popular but they're set up to offer best of three as well and also it it just seems like there's a bifurcation of platforms right where you've Mm -hmm. got you know their main platform is arena and then this marginal platform this list historic or legacy platform uh magic online which isn't going anywhere anytime soon but what does that mean for the future of vintage is is a is you know a, a popular platform if, if you have a lot of people migrating to arena then you lose some of the player base right that yep. might be interested might be able to play vintage legacy and so on so that's that's an overarching concern about the future of eternal formats on we'll call them wizards invested platforms online mm-hmm. platform that's definitely. that's definitely a story that's uh, should raise concerns for vintage players and and it's not going to end a- after the new year of course but um yeah. I think it's an important issue, and I think the community is correct to watch closely and hold Wizards accountable for how they support Vintage and other Eternal formats in a digital platform because well, the attendance in Vintage challenges that you described earlier is rising. It has risen. Yeah. It's risen yeah. to a, a new plateau of sorts, and who knows? It, it could continue to rise. We could see another plateau rise in 2019. Yeah, I agree. A little tangentially related to that is this: some of the one story that has been suggested is the format champs. Mm-hmm. You might remember when vintage was initially brought to Magic Online, mm-hmm. we had a vintage online. It was called a Vintage Masters Championship. Yep. And there was one that was like construct vintage constructed and limited, and that was kind of the big splashy event because at the time you could only play dailies or you could play. Uh, two or eight player queues none of the premier events fired and this is before leagues this is before league well before leagues managed leagues and then there was nothing after that for six months and then there was the holiday festival and then there was nothing like that for another year or so (laughs) before (laughs) they launched the uh power nine challenge 
So there, this this announcement that next year there are going to be four, there are going to be quarterly vintage championships or vintage qualifiers, and then a championship in 2020 is a big story. But I think it's also a cheat. That's not a 2018 story. That's a 2019 story. Hmm, so yeah. that's something that we'll have to. I appreciate people recommending that, but that's a story for another another show. The other two big stories that I'd like to propose that are number one, the revival of the Star City Games Power Nine series, and what that was like and that whole experience. That was a big, big story, a big event. Yeah. And also the proliferation of Eternal Weekend. This was the second Eternal Weekend Europe, but the first Eternal Weekend Asia. Having that on the calendar, annual calendar, those three events, that's a that's a big story. And especially how successful Asia, the Asian Vintage Championship was. That's not the first Asian Vintage Championship, it's the first one under the umbrella of an eternal weekend. Yeah. Those are the big those are big, big stories of the year. Are there any others that you'd like to mention, Kevin? I think that's enough. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of ground we've covered there, as I said at the start. There's a lot of overarching and broad topics here it's really hard to compare them on an apples to apples basis borderline impossible when it comes to something <laughs> about the metagame something about the economy something about tournament support i mean we're in all <laughs> facets of the community here yeah but the question is what's what's the biggest story what's the most impactful what's the most important yeah and, so well, and i'll give you i'll give you my vote at the end of the episode on what it is. yeah so we don't need to argue that here and now necessarily but we have come to the end of our nominations here. So we've covered our nominees for card, set, deck, and story. So now I think we can get right into awarding our 2018 Moxie. Do it. Okay, so we like to start with best new set of the year because it really sets the stage for um, how cards were introduced into the format, you know, month over month and that kind of thing. Um, We reviewed the candidates early on and I just re-reviewed them a minute ago. Steve, do you have any preamble before you make your nomination at this point? (laughs) Well, I think you kind of set it up pretty well already in, in that you can't really... There's really only one choice at the end of the day. <laughs> D- Dominaria dominated. Yeah. This uh, there's there's really category. no two ways about it. I mean, it, <laughs> it had obviously the most turn the top eight appearances by new cards taken as a collection. It had the most by individuals, including the top two by a large margin. And there's also no there's really no nitpicking the fact that these yeah. two planeswalkers in particular uh, made. In, ca- in some cases, powerful tactical changes, as you observed with Karn and Outcome, and in some cases, powerful structural changes and hybridization in the case of Teferi. Yeah. There's, there's just no two ways about it. Nothing else comes close at this point. Well, I, that's a very um, kind of well-put technical analysis, but I think the <laughs> other piece that really matters is buzz. <laughs> buzz. I mean, really, I mean, like, you know, what was what should these sets have the most buzz? The, the irony, of course, is that Karn, neither Karn nor Teferi had anywhere near the amount of buzz of Traxos and Damping Sphere. <laughs> so I think if you were just to reduce it to buzz alone, Dominaria still wins. That's right. But we collectively, <laughs> that is you and I, and I think mostly the community early on, did not encapsulate the full impact properly at the start. I agree with you completely. And 
you, I mean, there's no better evidence than the fact that we didn't even review Teferi. We just thought that a five mana planeswalker with <laughs> well, this kind of ability was was not. We didn't feel compelled to add it to our list, and no one else uh, nominated it when we asked Twitter about it. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna let you or I shoulder the blame for that. We in this particular <laughs> case, this set was all nominations. So <laughs> it was re- recommendations. It was. So we didn't. We didn't review it because it wasn't recommended to us in this particular case. <laughs> yeah, and we have overruled nominations in the past, and don't, we know we don't have zero control here, but uh, yeah. it's definitely the case that that's the reason we didn't review Teferi. Yeah, so Dominary wins, I think, hands down a landslide on all fronts. It has the number one and two. Yep. It has the uh, predominance of the marginal, and it has the highest in terms of buzz. So it's... Uh, yeah. And speaking personally for myself, it's also the set of the year I was the most excited about from a, a nostalgia and lore standpoint, right? This is digging deep in Magic's history from a yeah. story standpoint with characters like Teferi, no yes. less, and Karn. And we uh, got a Mox, too. Yeah, it's just, it's fantastic. It was a great set. It's also really fun to draft. So Agreed. that sets us up then for best so, new card. So the Moxies, we both, Dominaria wins, oh, wins two Moxies. <laughs> that's right. Our, both of our Moxies go to Dominaria for best new set. Best new card, I think, is going to be a little bit of a closer... I, I'm glad you uh, have to go first on a this A closer <laughs> fight. So we've covered the salient issues in terms of quantifying performance, right? Top eights in total goes to Karn with 36, Teferi's second with 26. These two cards are at the top of the list for me. I have honorable mentions for Niv-Mizzet, whom I love, Psymaster Thopterist, who I think has a lot of future ahead of him, that kind of thing. But it's just, this is a Karn and Teferi fight in my eyes. And... The thing that really is interesting to me, which we previously articulated, is the main deck versus sideboard element. Teferi's 26 top eights were all main deck. Teferi was the structural linchpin, basically, in the hybridization and the reason that deck was built the way it was. If you take Teferi out, the whole thing kind of crumbles back and devolves back into just Jeskai Mentor, right? It's inevitable. You don't put mana drains in Jeskai Mentor, right? We, We know this, basically. Teferi was the thing. Karn, while numerically dominant and many strong tentpole performances throughout the year, PO would have done, I think, just about the same as you put it. Or you could have put Jace in that slot and been, you know, I don't know, 75, 80% as effective, perhaps. It's hard, it's hard to know. But the point is, is the deck didn't only exist because of Karn's success. And I think that, for me, is the deal breaker. My moxie <laughs> goes to Teferi, Hero of Dominaria. <sighs> Kevin, I I just cannot give the Moxie to either one of these cards. And let really? Me, let me let me explain why. All right, I want to. I've hear already this. said that I can't give it. I, I I'm a problem giving it to Karn because it just doesn't see much main deck play. If it's not a main deck card, how important is it really? Seriously, <laughs> you know? I mean that's it's a a, a a glib statement, but a reasonable <laughs> uh, sentiment. Right. It's not meant to be entirely. I mean, obviously, a lot of cards in the sideboards are very important. But to me, it's not a it's not a um, a kind of a metagame, a kind of an axis upon which the metagame spins. It just isn't. Yeah. And we can look at the numbers and say, well, Teferi is a lot better. But the truth of the matter is Teferi in almost every single instance is a one of. That's true. Yes, there are a handful of decks where it's like more anchored in the deck as a two of. But if you look at the Just Guy decks that have it, it's like two Jace, two Dak, one Teferi. I cannot give a, a card that's basically a singleton where it shows up the Moxie. I just, you know, in terms of being a, kind of an anchor, 
you know, for these strategies. Singletons don't anchor strategies. Now, they can be strategically significant when they're restricted cards and your game is oriented around them. But I don't think these decks were really oriented around Teferi in the main. There are certainly some decks that were, like Matthew Murray's deck, but I don't think that's the main. And I also think that Teferi has, has waned a little bit. I could be wrong about that, but I think it kind of peaked in the fall and is not quite the where it was. I mean, I was looking, it might have peaked in October or November. Hmm. I was looking at recent challenge results. Um, there were no Teferis that, that I could see in in the last two challenge, challenge top 32. That's right. Teferi was definitely an early to mid part of the year sensation. So it doesn't have, it might have been a, a kind of flash in the pan. I don't see it having the same staying power. So I just think the the um, <laughs> the demerits of these two cards are too strong for me to award them a moxie. So that doesn't leave me a lot of options, right? I mean, Go on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it really, it leaves me down to Niv-Mizzet, Assassin's Trophy, or Traxos, really. Okay. And Traxos, I think, proved not to be what we expected, so I'll eliminate that. That really, to me, comes down to it. What card do I think is going to be in the format and seeing play three, four, five years from now? Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be either Assassin's Trophy or niv Mizzet. I think these cards are more enduring. Karn will probably be pretty enduring. I think even if Parad- what happens if Paradoxical Outcome is restricted? Yeah. It probably has virtually disappears, but I still think it will see some play, right? But some of I the think- top eights were in shop decks. Yeah, yeah, some of them were in other decks, but I think that I think it's way too reliant on PO. I think I was originally going to say niv Mizzet <laughs> because I think it's just I think it's the card that's going to see play for a long time as an oath finisher. But I think it also I, I think it, and I also think it sees play beyond that because it's got so much built in functionality. Yep. But now I'm leaning towards Assassin's Trophy just because I think it's <laughs> actually better than Abrupt Decay, which is an unbelievable card. Mm hmm. That has, or at least on par with Abrupt Decay, which is a card that has seen play essentially since the moment it saw print, and I think is basically a format staple. Yep. But the fact that it's just a marginally improved version of an existing card is also a demerit, (laughs) where Niv Mizzet is kind of more exciting. It wouldn't take much to push Bug into the upper tier of this format and make Assassin's Trophy all of a sudden, you know, 100 copies in top eights a year. Exactly. Like, what (laughs) happens if if PO is restricted? Yeah, you know, and oath is restricted someday. Like, well, I guess if oath is re- oath, assassin's trophy is good against oath. Yeah, I, to me, it's either niv mizzet or assassin's trophy, and I'm taking a longer term view mm-hmm. of this. I'm not trying to look just at top eights this year. Mm-hmm. I'm, doesn't mean I'm anti-empirical, you know, <laughs> but I'm just I'm just trying to take a, a more a, a slightly longer you know time horizon for viewing this and and a, and a wider view. You know, I think Karn is just too tied to the specific tactics of PO, and Teferi I don't think has the staying power. So I, I don't think Teferi. I would be surprised if Teferi is in the top six most played Planeswalkers by the end of 2019. So reasonable, reasonable. So, so I'm gonna say, ah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll say I'll split the difference. I think Niv Mizzet is my favorite card of the year. Mm-hmm. That will allow me to say Assassin's Trophy is the card of the year. I think to 10 years from now, if you're looking back at 2018, I think this will be the card that you'll see in the vintage card pool. Yeah, I do think that is a reasonable interpretation of this award. And you're probably right. I do think all the the longer term views you described are probably true. 
And I, I am open to the fact that in the long run, some of these other cards that had lesser performances this year, like Psy or even Experimental Frenzy, could end up jumping Karn or Teferi in terms of long-term impact. Right. At, because they're the kind of cards that get better and better, and Teferi is right. not necessarily in that category. One other thing that I think will allow Assassin's Trophy to get better and better is as more and more Planeswalkers are printed and better ones, Mm. Assassin's Trophy has more and more targets. That's a good point. Absolutely true. All right, so the Moxie's four best card of 2018 go to Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, and Assassin's Trophy, respectively. The public is going to be mad at us. (laughs) 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 They they voted strong for Karn. Yeah, they did. They definitely did. All right. This was this is like the that Academy Award moment where Moonlight wanted to, <laughs> and they screwed up the card. <laughs> sorry, sorry, everyone. <laughs> On to best deck of 2018. Now we already talked about the the honorable mention or caveat for best new deck, but the Moxie <sighs> speaks to the best deck in terms of <laughs> its impact and performance on the whole year of 2018. We. Ran through the numbers in terms of challenges and tentpole performances. The tentpole victories being relatively diversely spread across some of the top most popular decks. Yeah. The challenge numbers we talked about both Q4 and then for the whole year. And, and if you've been following along at home on the show for the last, well, year, you've, you've heard how the metagame has fluctuated on the challenges over the year. Steve, do you want to go first or do you want me to? <laughs> well, you had set yourself up to go first, so okay. I thought it would be easier. That's fine. <laughs> It, it doesn't matter to me, whatever you'd like. Well, I'll, I'll keep going then. So okay. my metrics personally for the best deck of the year are, are, are a synthesis of a few things plus a little bit of feel. But the overall top eight performances and challenge victories is strong in my eyes. Yeah. If there had been dominant victories, like and the temple events had been dominated by any one archetype, I would feel yeah. strongly about it. But we've got, what have we got? Jeskai, P.O., uh, shops, uh, survival, and PO. That's not dominated by anyone, right? There's only one right. repeat in there. It was a great year for PO, but I think I have to give my moxie to Workshop Aggro for 2018. <laughs> and the, I'll tell you, the, the, the real cincher for me was in thinking about the North American Championship being won by Brian playing PO and there being another one in the top eight in third place. I mean, that's a strong yes. showing for PO. But if you look at the metagame for champs yeah. this year, the deck with the greatest win percentage against the field was still shops. Yes, if you look at the breakdown, that's yeah. a great point. For any deck up above 4%. I mean, Survival actually had the number one against the field, but it was a 4% yeah. deck. But shops was 55.5% against the field while having such a huge portion of the metagame. And outcome, not bad, was only 52.4. I mean, that's a that's a 3.1 yeah. percentage point difference. And when it comes to win percentage against the field, that's actually a big number. Because yes. that number doesn't vary broader than, you know, realistically <laughs> by about 10% in total. So that combined with the overall performance, combined with the one tentpole win by Andy at the SCG Con means shops is my deck of the year. That's, that's a really good analysis. Um, my mind is flirting with all sorts of different analogies. I'm thinking about, you know, basketball players who are like LeBron's the best basketball player, but he doesn't always win the title every year. (laughs) You know, you know how, how those things play out. And what I think is important is that we keep the entire year in perspective. As you said, this is the best deck of the year. 
Yeah. Not the best deck of the end of the year, <laughs> or not the not the marquee deck of the year. Right, the it's breakout the deck, performance. The break. It's the deck that that month in and month out have the best overall performance consistent. Um, PO in PO's column is winning two of the five marquee events. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think you make a good point about uh, it being. I didn't remember it being in third place, but but shops was half of the top four. It was Rich Shea and. Um, and uh, Nam Tramp, yep. the Vintage Championship. Yep. Um, and as you said, had the highest win percentage. I think the cincher for me, so there's a, two other statistics I just want to point out. Um, PO having the best individual month of the year by one percentage is, to me, dwarfed by the fact that Shops won, won 15 of the <laughs> 52 Vintage Challenges. I mean, yeah. that is, that it clobbered the competition in that regard. And I think that is enormous. I mean, the fact that like the next best was PO at nine. Yeah. I guess if you add Just Guy and Rug and Delver, you get to twelve. <laughs> but that is that's a huge margin. The other thing that I think is important about shops is that shops never had less than thirteen percent of top eight wow. per month. Whereas PO had a had a month where it had six percent in April. Um, and I think the fact that shops was Basically, shops ran from 13% in the as its floor to 34% in April, and it was aside from June, where it was in 15%. It was never less than 16%. Or it was mm-hmm. February was 16%, and it was mostly in the let's see 20s and had a number had three months in the 30s. Yeah. So shops just month in and month out grounded out. Mm-hmm. You know, winning <laughs> events, topping it, top eighting, and not only winning the Power Nine tournament, which was the second largest American tournament, the Waterbury was the smallest of all of these events at 108 players. So, so PO bookended it won the largest and the smallest. Mm-hmm. But, but I think I think Shops won the second most important. It might have it wasn't the second largest, but I think it was the second most important, most competitive in terms of the number of players that the, the like the draw. So I think I think Shops all those factors lead towards shops being the best deck of the year overall. Yep. Can't disagree with anything you said there that you and I value as opposed to other folks in the community definitely value consistent top eight performance combined with wins. And, and I know that that's not the only way to evaluate a deck and, but for the purposes of our awards, it is definitely a powerful indicator for me. Well, let me give you one last data point before we stop. There were five vintage challenges in December. Paradoxical Outcome did not win one of them. Mm-hmm. You know despite, having, despite having such a huge representation. Exactly. You know what did? Shops won two. Wow. The other decks that won were Bug won one, Rug won one, and Dredge won one. So mm. two of the five tournaments in December, despite PO's overall representation, were won by Shops. So yeah. Shops won the PO-infested field. <laughs> Twice. That's Yeah, that's impressive. So... I, I think it's shops as well. I think PO did a very valiant and amazing thing that definitely broke out this year, but shops still by hair wins best deck of 28 or vintage. Yep. All right. Two more moxies go out the door, both of them to shops for best deck in 2018. And now we get to what is clearly the most subjective of our, of our <laughs> awards. And the one that I don't know, could be the most fun to debate and talk it about. Is. 
I think it is. I think it is. It, we've certainly had fun with this topic in years past. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to cheat a little bit and sure. introduce a topic or a gloss on a topic that, with a slightly different frame. Okay. So I do think the return of survival is is a big story. I think the return of the SEG revival is probably the second biggest story. But I'm not going to say that the biggest story of the year was the return of survival. I think that survival's emergence was part of a larger pattern. It's something you said earlier in this episode. I think the story of the year is, let me just, let me hang this in an even larger historical frame. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've been doing this history of vintage series and and I've broken the 25-year history of vintage into five different eras. Mm -hmm. 93 to 97 is the type one era. Mm -hmm. 98 to 2002 is the dark ages where vintage has basically disappeared as a format. 90, uh, sorry, 2003 to 2007, those five years are what I call kind of clumsily the great acceleration, or you could also call it the Yog Moss Will era, <laughs> where all these decks were either playing Yog Moss Will or and trying to abuse it or trying to fight it. Mm-hmm. 2008 to 2012, the next set of five years was the Time Vault era. Time Vault was fixed in the summer of late, uh, fall of 28, 20, 2008, and then Shards of Alara comes out with Tezzeret, and that's Time Vault, Bob Jstacks won three of the four vintage championships in that era, The it, three of the five. And basically from Shards of Alara until the NYSE won, that was the best deck. And then you enter this new era, 2013 to 2018, which is basically, I don't have a good name for it, but it's basically the great polarization or the duopoly format where you're, the format is dominated by shops and Xerox. Mm-hmm. And that era was defined by, you know, basically those two archetypes, those two schools dominating the format, not necessarily winning the Vintage Championship every year, but certainly constituting the largest percentage of the format and so on. Those are the two top tier decks. And they were dealt with with a series of restrictions. Mm-hmm. I think what this year is about is where we moved out of that era, that the restrictions of Treasure Cruise, of Dig Through Time, of Chalice of the Void, of Lodestone Golem, of Gush, of Gitaxian Probe, of Thorn, and finally Mentor, <laughs> have have done their job. They've brought they've brought those decks down to down to size. And what's happened as a result is the metagame has completely opened up. Well, not completely, but it's broadly opened up. I think for the first time, what we basically have is almost every major archetype has a, a, a or school has a meaningful percentage of the metagame. You know, the Dredge deck, the Survival deck, the, which is a Lestray deck, PO is a big blue deck, the Xerox decks, the, um, you know, uh, all the, even the Bug decks, all these decks are actually, that the format is rich and diverse in a way that we really haven't seen, at least since, you know, in this last period, this last era, mm-hmm. this duopoly era. And it's unfortunate that most of the VSL seasons were in that era. The only one that wasn't was the first half of the first season, which came before Khan, you know, which was the, which was much more diverse. So I think the return of survival is part, it's a sub-story, it's a subplot of a larger story, which is the diversity of the format out of out of that previous era, where neither Xerox nor shops are dominating, and you have a lot more diversity. Now, just because it's diverse doesn't mean everything is all roses candy you know people some people find it diverse but not fun some people don't like the dredge deck and some people don't like the survival deck i think it's awesome and i i hope that we'll see more diversity not less i hope the format doesn't consolidate into just this three-legged stool but i hope that 
that Dredge and Survival and Bug can get more share and Oath can get more of a share. Um, we'll see what happens. But I think that's the big story of the year. The story of the year, and you said that you, you, met, you used the word diversity of the format earlier in the episode, but the story of the year, if you want to encapsulate it into one sentence or one thought, it is the diversity of the vintage format. I love it. I mean, uh, we've taken already talked about taking a, a historical and or holistic perspective on the year in these different categories for different reasons and different timescales, of course. Uh, your assessment of best card being Assassin's Trophy is a good example. We haven't always had that kind of approach uh, in this show, in our awards, and our moxies, etc. But it's interesting to kind of quantify the, the various stories we listed. Survival, the Magic Online, Magic Arena uh, evolution the Power 9 Revival, the M MTGO Format Champs announcement, and the proliferation of Eternal Weekends. All of those things are, we're probably not going to pin them exactly to 2018. Right. And or they're not going to linger. Like Survival may or may not survive. And, and if it does, you know, we'll say, yeah, that probably started in 2018, but it might not be pinned to this time. Um, the, the whole magic online magic arena thing. Yeah. Arena came out in 2018 and really had a get go, but that's not going to be the pivot. This is not the pivotal year for that. If SCG keeps going with the power nine series, then yeah, we'll say, okay, the first one of those started back in 2018, but if they're doing more than one a year, they need to accelerate. And the MTG format champs we talked about, it's not really a story for this year. It was just announced. So I think I'm I think I'm right there with you. The the thing that we're going to look back on that say this was a real pivotal moment of this yes, year, a turning it's, point. Yeah, it's a turning into point. To a different era. And, and it and it's punctuated I think by paradoxical outcome um rising up yes. and being so competitive and winning two yes. out of the five tent poles even though I've already argued and you and you agreed that it's not necessarily the deck of this year. Right. It this is a pivotal year. We could find yes. We could find that we get into 2019 and Paradoxical Outcome continues to stake its claim to the top, to being the top deck in the format. And it, it honestly, it wouldn't take much of a shift to get us there. And all those factors combined that you already articulated better than I could, it's really very compelling. Yeah, this is, this is a, a liminal moment. It's a year that's a hinge point between era. I think it's really clear that from cons until the restriction of Mentor and Thorn was a distinct era. Mm -hmm. You know, and just like just like from the shards of Alara and the Rearata of Time Vault until really the printing of I don't know what where exactly you want to put it, Graph Digger's Cage and Thalia, which came really close together, that was an era, right? And and this were I mean if you if you would at the beginning of twenty eight you looked at the preceding months, you would have thought that we were in for more shops domination. <laughs> Right, I mean the the yep. 2017 Vintage Championship top eight was five shop decks and three oath. Yep, and yet there were no restriction in the entire year of 2018. Zero restrictions and zero unrestrictions as well. Mm -hmm. No changes of the banned and restricted list. Yet what happened was a tremendous metagame shift, and it was one that was precipitated not even per se by new printings, but by kind of like just metagame internal metagame dynamic. Yeah. There wasn't any like new huge printing like a walking ballista that shifted the metagame at all. It was there were marginal printings that did very little, in fact, in terms of shifting the metagame. It was all previous printings from previous years. 2016's uh Paradox Welcome, 2017's uh, Hollow One, you know, those kinds of things. So I, I think what happened this year is that 
the metagame shifted into a, it just opened up into a much more diverse mode. I think paradoxical outcome was the precipitating factor to, to that. Now, that doesn't mean that things are going to continue along this path, but we, we finally got out of the era of shop dominance and, and the, or the oligopoly of, <laughs> of shops and Xerox. And that was a real struggle to get out of that. You know, I think paradoxical outcome is, the big, is a big player in, in that. And so I think people will look at this, will look at this as opening up a different era of vintage. Doesn't mean the PO is going to forever. My concern is that PO is eventually restricted. Then we actually revert back to that era. But, but it's not a given. I think that the, a lot, the cumulative effect of the restrictions has taken a toll and that we're finally out of that era. So I think the diversity of the format, which is partly signified by the rise of a return, whatever you want to call it, of survival, is one subplot of that story. That's the biggest story of the year, is that the incredible, and it's also measured by the Gini-Simpson coefficient, which is the highest levels of measured scores through most of the year than we've seen that, that are on record. This is the most diverse format that just about we've ever seen in vintage. So I think the diversity of the format is the biggest story of the year, and that we're finally out of this era of dominance by shops and Xerox. I'm really excited for what 2019 holds for the format. You know, we're about to review a new set. That's always a fun time, and I'm yeah. excited to look at and try new cards. But but what you've just described, one of my favorite things that happened this year and it was really emblematic early in the year, was the evolution of the outcome decks, right? What was the standard for the outcome deck? And I think that we collectively, as a community, as a metagame, we were a little bit slow to evolve what is the, the, the superior version of outcome. The Esper outcome decks that have emerged yeah. as, as a standard, we, we maybe could have arrived at a little earlier, but we were so enamored with ThoughtCast early on. Yeah. Now, now, granted, 4X Mentor complicated that mathematics, but <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but the simple Different truth deck. is, is that we could have been playing this outcome deck much earlier than we than we have been, right? True. And I, it speaks to the internal metagame shifts that you've d- described and how it didn't happen through new printings necessarily. It didn't happen through bans or restrictions. It was just incremental evolution and good old-fashioned metagaming, which is some right. of my favorite things in Magic formats. And obviously, those of us who are eternal uh, and vintage players, both lowercase and uppercase, are, are want to stick with a metagame for a long term and watch its long-term trends. This year has been just a great example of that. Yeah. I mean, there are a number of instances in the past where you see metagames turn on old printing. But mm-hmm. One of the big ones was in 2011, it was 20, yeah, 11, where the metagame opened up because of Brian DeMars rediscovered Ancient Grove. You know? <laughs> and so, but it wasn't a new printing. It was the rediscovery of an old printing that just shifted things. Mm-hmm. A totally new trajectory. I, I think this year, I mean, if you had told me that we'd be where we were at the beginning of the year and there would be basically no new printings that made a huge difference and no restrictions or unrestrictions, I wouldn't have believed it. I thought at the beginning of the year, we were still going to see shops dominating. Mm-hmm. And and yet, while we we said it's the best deck, it's certainly not dominant. So I I think it's been a remarkable year for that. Yeah, I'd like to look forward. We've given our moxies out. I mean, my my moxie is for diversity of vintage. Yours is for 2018. How do you want to frame it? Um, I I I can't articulate it any better than you did. I mean, the way you described that and how pivotal this year is is all I can say is to copy and paste that. So I would say okay. the, the diversity, <laughs> but 
I, I wouldn't say diversity is the only element, though, right? The the pivotal era, the, the yeah, pivot the, from the one era, era to the next, yeah. And we don't know what we're going to call this next era yet, No, <laughs> right? But we know we're leaving the prior one. Yes, it seems like the prior one has been left behind. Yeah, so it's a, it's a combination being. of diversity and metagame shift and era transition that I can't encapsulate in any one pithy <laughs> statement. <laughs> so looking forward... I think there's two big storylines or things to be looking forward to and talking about. The first is that we're going to have a lot of big tournaments. We're going to have the NYSE returning. The Hopefully, we'll have another Power 9 event. Um, Star Games Power 9 series event. We'll hopefully have a Waterbury. So there are going to be a lot of tentpole tournaments. If you're a paper vintage ter- tournament player, there's a lot to look forward to. I, Don't forget the, the the beginning of the format champs. Yeah, the, the um, qualifiers, those, yeah. those uh, end of quarter, 32 player, event, whatever may play. Those are going to be huge. Those That's going to give big. us some more interesting tentpole events, even though the player uh, counts will be small. It's going to be, those are hard to get. Those are, you have to qualify. I've only got a couple of QP points so far for this, <laughs> so, or uh, qualification points. So um, the other thing I think is really going to be critical is to see what happens there's a tension between diversity and let's call it interactivity or fun. The, a lot of players, not a lot, but a, a small but vocal cadre of players have have described PO and survival and dredge as not fun, even though they're diversity enhanced. So there's a tension that hasn't yet been resolved. The DCI's actions this year will resolve it. We'll know where they come down. Do they come down in favor of the promoting diversity, which, by the way, is their official statement on the ban and restricted list wizards page <laughs> says the purpose of the ban and restricted lists are to promote format diversity and to give players deck options or is it to mollify complaint and complaint driven is it a complaint driven process or is it an empirical process and um, there is a danger that those things converge if po continues to sit at 35 percent of top eights as it did in december or even rises then po is probably on a path to restriction but assuming it doesn't assuming it comes back down into the 20 range then we'll see what that to me is the most pivotal question of 2019 is will PO be restricted? And and that is of course partly contingent upon its behavior, but the answer to that question answers deeper, more fundamental questions about how the format is perceived and how it's managed and what is important in the format. And so to me, those two things, looking forward to this plethora of tournaments and uh, the looking at the management of the format, will the DCI and also, will the DCI sub sub issue? Will it continue to try and unrestrict them? You know, that we've talked about maybe fast bond or windfall being candidates for unrestriction. You know, they had in the past unrestricted some surprising cards like regrowth and not surprising cards like burning wish and Yawgmoth's bargain. But will they continue to try to do that to promote diversity, even though the format's pretty healthy right now? I think those questions are important ones for 2019. What do you think? Well, given that we don't know anything beyond, you know, the next couple of months in terms of the Ravnica Allegiance coming out and a couple of other announcements and uh, vague things, I couldn't agree more. So those are key topics that if everything else stays the same, those will be critical to watch. Uh, If nothing else is majorly disruptive in terms of new printings, then I would be lobbying very much for unrestrictions, as you said. We've talked about it at length in banner restricted shows in the past, and we're obviously both in favor of some combination of unrestrictions already, basically, uh, even though we don't necessarily agree on what's best. But the if nothing else changes and is majorly disruptive to the format, then I couldn't agree more. 
I can't shake the notion, though, looking back at our moxies from 2017, our unanimous best new card for 2017 was Walking Ballista. Right. Now, it would not take much <laughs> for a new card of the impact or quality as Walking Ballista to quickly take the limelight for 2019 and become the thing that 2019 is about. So there's always a risk. And, I, and I'm not going to say, I'm not predicting that such a thing will happen. I'm just saying that it is, uh, it's a relatively short list of things could happen from a new printing standpoint that, that immediately take over the importance for the year and how the metagame shift. Right. Um, and I'm not saying it's necessarily a walking ballista. I just mean that um, it wouldn't take much for a new artifact to, to come out and push shops back on top. Right. And a, a different kind of new artifact could come out and push outcome over the top. So we don't necessarily control our fates, but I do want to keep the things you just described on our radar because we can't get all the way through 2019 without addressing them, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, there are fortunate printings that arrive at just the right time to boost a marginal deck up. Mm-hmm. My favorite, probably my favorite marginal printing of all time was it, well, there are a number of them, but in, in 2008, there was a series of just absurd printings that came at just the right moment. Like, you might remember Painter Servant came at the moment when Tyrant Oath and Flash were the two best decks, mm-hmm. and like it allowed you to play Red Elemental Blast main deck, and so created a whole new archetype. And then also, when, when Bubble Flash, when, when uh, uh, Revel Arc was printed just as Flash was ascending mm-hmm. to make Flash. So there's kind of, and then there's unfortunate print, like the Rhea Rata of Time Vault at the same time the Tezzeret is printed, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you, there can be printings like Ballista, which entrench a dominant deck, and there can be printings that boost marginalized deck. Um, if we get the latter, it could be great. If we get another new tool for shops, another really powerful tool, which we feared Traxos might be, but wasn't. Yeah. You know, you know, if you get kind of like the, uh, the the return to Mirrodin cards when shot when when Lodestone is dominant, then things get re- go really south. So I, I'm there are certainly cards that look interesting, and we're going to review them in our next podcast. But there's a card that could be playable in Dredge and could boost Pitch Dredge that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a blue white creature that we're going to spend a lot of time on. So these cards could really push Vintage, could boost non the, the decks that aren't in the top three. Yeah. Or at least in the top two, let's put it that way. <laughs> and we could have another disaster such as cons. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we know, and nothing has changed, the fact that Magic R&D does not test for vintage. They don't consider, or eternal really, they don't consider eternal when they're designing cards. They have demonstrated that they are willing to Design. create cards that are highly problematic and that the whole delve mechanic. So, But they've also designed some good answers, like Containment Priest. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Pl- plenty of good design in the last several years and plenty of good cards that are not breaking the format and that cards that you and I enjoy thoroughly. Cards like Fragmentize, for example. So I I would like to summarize my position as anything can and does happen vis-a-vis new printings. <laughs> and uh, I am not making any kind of prognostication. I'm just saying that we need to remain vigilant in our set reviews. And vigilant and flexible, I would say, because, you know, we don't want a, a repeat of the Teferi issue. But on the whole, I really am still looking forward to talking about unrestrictions again sometime soon as well. Because from a policy standpoint, I think we may actually be a little overdue. Yeah. 
the the one <clears throat> archetype that continues or school that continues to be marginalized in this era of enormous diversity mm-hmm. are the combo decks. I guess the PO deck that won Vintage Championship is kind of a hybrid Wiseman restricted combo deck. It's got the Time Twister, got a little, it's got tendrils. Yeah, but I think Windfall is way overdue for unrestriction. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just a, it just would be an interesting card to kind of give you more you know explosive explosive decks a little bit more of a, a, of yeah. a chance. I but, think we should. I think we're. Well, I think we're talking ourselves into doing a, a banner restricted show uh, in Q later in Q one here. What do you think? All right, I'm in. <laughs> but we've so got Steve, a very exciting set review coming up first. Yeah, absolutely. So our next show, as you've said, Ravnica Allegiance set review. It'll happen in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what day we get the the full spoiler, but it's going to be soon. So it won't be another three months before you get another show from us. And I've just said that we may queue up a banner restricted show to elaborate on the concepts, especially on the the notion of policy as it might bear on unrestrictions. We may have to review our most unrestrictable cards list, Steve, because that was a fun exercise last time we talked about it. I think you and I had, had more fun actually talking about the least unrestrictable cards, which was an interesting philo- philosophy discussion, but we can save that for then. In the meantime, we will be seeing you, I know it doesn't actually work that way, on the VSL in a couple of weeks. So make sure to check out Tuesday nights starting on January 15 as a holdover for our our next show. And please do, if you enjoy the show, go ahead and support the Patreon for the VSL. Mm. That certainly helps the producers and production team get that show off uh, off the ground and and make it as, as polished as it can be. Yes, absolutely. And we are very grateful to the patrons that support the VSL. And with that, thank you for listening to episode 86 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other vintage and magic players can find this podcast. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.